Good day, dear listeners. Steve Freda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest today is Charles Fry, a serial technology entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Code Exitos, a product studio where he and his team help entrepreneurs and innovators design, build, and launch digital products. Charles, welcome to the show. Hey, Steve. I'm glad to be here. Great intro. I could use that for our sales pitch. Well, you can cut and paste. If you like my accent, it's a perfect version. Your accent's great. So Charles, I mean, you've been around for a few decades in the technology space and with multiple companies. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your journey and how you end up with code and the mission of that and all that. So how did you get here? Yeah, well, sometimes I ask myself the same question. How did I get here? It's been a lot of fun. I've had, I'd like to say I've never had a job in my career. So I grew up on a farm in Ohio in the Midwest, uh, off to the University of Michigan. I studied science. I think my scientific training kind of factors into my management style and my management framework. I know that we may talk about that a little later. And the essence of the story, Steve, is that In the late 1980s, when I was at university, computers were just coming into, they were just becoming available. They had just been invented. And if we were going to do anything with them in the laboratory, we had to program them to do what we wanted them to do. And I found that process easy and intuitive to me to make the computer work, whether it was programming or configuring. And it was a little bit like being on the farm and building things, except we were building things with software and logic, not with wood or steel or soil. I don't know. It just seemed natural fit to me. And all of a sudden, people were willing to pay me to help them do what I thought was obvious. And so that launched my tech career at the dawn of the PC age in the United States. And I just... I stuck with it. In the late 80s and the early 90s, we didn't call ourselves entrepreneurs. We were small business people, somewhat embarrassed about it. Now it's a badge of honor to say that you want to be an entrepreneur. But at the time, it was like you didn't have a real job. And so for the first 10 years or so, we largely made up, but we just had to make up how we managed our business and how we grew it. And I really enjoy the process of what I call something to nothing. So my sweet spot is kind of in the $0 to $100 million of revenue, if we just want to use revenue as an indicator. And that's where I like to be. Over the years, I've been involved in some bootstrap companies and some venture capital-backed companies. Those were particularly thing experiences. Let's see, bought a couple, sold a couple Plopped a couple along the way in there, some things that the hardest lessons to learn. And I was finishing up being part of a venture backed company out of Silicon Valley. And I knew at this point in my career, I wanted to do something that was a little more impactful in the world than just trying to do another billion dollar ramp up VC thing. And so I started Code Exitos, and Code Exitos is a product development studio. You're exactly right. We work with entrepreneurs and innovators. Guys like us in your audience are exactly the kind of people we help turn their idea into a technical product. And we're also a certified B Corp. While we do our work, 
We pay special attention to, we have a pretty grand saying for this, but we like to make the world a better place. And that means for our employees and for our clients and really in any way we can. So it's a founding thread of the principle behind how we run our company. So there, I just crammed about 30 some years into that. I'm sorry if it took a little long, but that's the short version. No, no, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I'm very curious about a couple of things. One, you mentioned that you've done bootstrapped companies, you did VC-backed companies. What would you say is the major difference between the mindset of a bootstrapped company versus a VC-backed one? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one I think about a lot. We didn't know this the first time. So I've been involved in three VC-backed companies. And I'm not talking about friends and family or local money, but West Coast, Silicon Valley, followed up by East Coast, New York, big funds. There's no value judgment in there, but they're the epitome of the VC model. And I think what you have to know going in is that the game changes when you take professional venture capital money and you try to achieve professional venture capital outcomes. So it's not a value judgment of it being a better game or a worse game in my opinion, but the expectations and the criteria are vastly different. So like at Codexitos, I made the conscious decision. We have no outside equity in investors. We don't even have any bank debt. I mean, it's, and that's for a reason. I don't want any outside stakeholders. And we talk very seriously about making this company last a hundred years. <laughs> and I'm not going to be around for a hundred years, but I hope that goes through successive generations of ownership. It's not a family business either. But with venture capital, you have a different set of expectations and frankly, obligations to the equity owners, the equity holders to go very fast and to achieve really steep financial outcomes. And it's not a bad thing. It's just radically different when you run the business. So I think the to summarize all that and answer your question most directly, what's different is You need to understand that the script you're following is significantly different when you say yes to venture capital money than when you're running a more privately held and controlled enterprise. It's going to be a lot more stressful, I reckon, when you're with VCs, right? It is really funny that we're talking about this because this week, one of my friends, they just announced a $21 million A round of funding and they're excited about their business. And I had coffee with him and we were having these conversations. It's different stress, I would say. For many, probably every entrepreneur is self-motivated and driven to some level, (laughs) usually to levels that our families don't understand. But with venture capital, that stress is also externalized because your board of directors and your investors, and I mean, they want to see results performance. So I don't know if it's more stressful, but it's a different flavor of stress that you, that you're signing up for. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, obviously when you are risking your own money, that's also stressful, right? When you're trying to bootstrap and you don't have the funding and you're kind of faking food off the table to put it in your the money in the company. Yeah. That also can be super stressful. And we see when you're a young person, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? That you lose the money of the investors and to take a job, right? That's right. What about for later in life? What about if someone, a middle-aged person with a family, do you see people like that? I mean, you yeah. you start with VC, a bad company, when you already were a seasoned entrepreneur. How does that pan out? How, what happens 
to family life? Does it take a back seat for a few years? Family. Well, I think anytime you start a company, almost everything takes a back seat for a few years. I started Code Exitos about five years ago. By way of disclaimer, I'm 59 now. I knew what I was getting into. I had, I was in great, I was in really good physical shape, pretty stress-free life. I was enjoying things. My kids are grown, grandkids, that sort of stuff. And I knew all of that was going to maybe not go on hold, but they were just going to get less time. And it sort of erodes those relationships. So those are some of the personal costs associated with it. But yeah, I think on the VC deals, it's 110% in. And I don't know that's healthy and it may be changing a little bit, but certainly in the model if from the late 90s until the 2010s, which was the last time I did a VC back deal, the assumption is that you're in 100, 110% and it's the only thing you think about. And there may be some trend changes that I'm seeing, but you're absolutely right about our clients. And this is, this is why I have the greatest non-job in the world is our clients fall into those two categories. They're either investing their own personal money and they want to build a company that they believe in. And half, maybe more than half, want to build something that they can attract venture capital with to scale it very rapidly. So we get involved very early in their journey and spend a lot of time with the founders talking about these kind of things. Like, hey, should I take the money? Do I need the money? Can I get by with this? So, I, But I think all of them and everyone I've met and all the people I've had the privilege of working with they sacrifice a lot on the personal side. Okay. Well, that's just the entrepreneurship. So, yeah. so let's switch gears here and let's talk about management blueprints. Your theme of the podcast is business frameworks that you picked up along the way that helped you think about your business differently and perhaps understand it at a deeper level. And we talked about a couple of concepts. What do you feel like one of the frameworks that you really have found useful on your journey? Yeah. First of all, I love the pinnacle model. The main points that are there behind you on the wall are, I stumbled my way into having the same main points. I never had the time or took the time to be as, as thoughtful as you've been and with your team to categorize it. And that's what makes it a framework and what makes it valuable. My, my personal interest right now, I'm going to, I'm going to keep studying more about the playbooks, but we can talk about that later. Your question is, what have I found valuable? Well, in software engineering, and maybe it's been 20 years ago now, the concept of agile software development became popular. And it's an engineering approach that we, because we use it as an engineering approach, I didn't want to have, hey, this is the framework we use to deliver our product, and then we have a different framework to manage. So the principle of Agile is to take small incremental steps and move rapidly through a continuous improvement or a continuous build cycle. And we found that it was really useful if we could describe our management behavior and our sort of management expectations in the same language that the engineering teams were using to explain their daily deliverable work. Like most frameworks that are successful, it grows into its own industry and gets corrupted and has a lot of different perspectives on what agile means. But to us, what agile means is to define small increments of work, take 
a reasonably short interval of time to deliver that piece of work and then decide what the next increment is. It doesn't mean you're wandering without a final goal. It just means like the old adage, if you don't try to eat the elephant all at one time. I would say that we continue to use that agile increment rapid evolution process as our framework. So how do you prioritize what should be the next increment in your development? Is there a process for that? Yeah, there is. And in fact, the other piece we should talk about is how agile can mean that you just stop and say, we're not doing this anymore. And there's no regret over failure. The idea is to get your level of work down to a small enough piece that if you say, you know what, this was a bad idea, let's stop it. It doesn't feel like you're out of a year's worth of training or work or whatever. But so in Agile, you maintain this idea of a backlog. And one thing when I coach entrepreneurs, I talk about the backlog, Steve, I'm sure you've seen this in your consulting work. No one ever runs out of ideas. Right. No, no team ever got together in a conference room and said, well, we can't think of anything else we should do in this company. I guess we're done. Let's go home. No one runs out of ideas. So if you imagine that yellow pad of where someone keeps the perpetual list of, oh, we should do this marketing thing. We should do this talent thing. and We should do this training thing. Those in agile speak are your backlog. They're not bad ideas. You're just not going to do them yet. So you establish this process of keeping the backlog. And then periodically for us in a management setting, it's usually about every month when our executive team meets, we revisit that and we say, okay, have we finished doing something that we're satisfied with that we feel like we should pick something out of the backlog and move it into an active piece. So If your listeners want to go off and read about agile backlogs and prioritization, they'll find it a very easy step to say, oh, we could do that with all of the ideas our management team has. Because I know one of my worst management habits is that I never run out of ideas and we get too many things started and not enough things finished. And so there's even a saying that we use in agile, which is, it's time to start stopping and yeah, start finishing and stop starting. Ah, start finishing and stop starting. Yeah. So it reminds me of the quote, I think it was Bill Hewlett of Hewlett Packard who said that more companies die of indigestion than starvation. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah, I'm going to remember that. I tell our clients and uh, entrepreneurs that I coach, even at the university level, that one of the problems that entrepreneurs have to face is that they're too smart for their own good. And what I mean by that is when you're starting a company, you have far, far more ideas, all of which probably are good ideas, but they exceed your ability to implement. And so you get that indigestion problem that you're talking about. Yeah, so with my clients, what I do, I mean, we also do a kind of a backlog. We didn't call it that, but I like to call, I like that expression. Mm-hmm. And what happens over time is the backlog keeps growing. Right. The ideas keep coming and the implementation is not going to accelerate. And then we filter the backlog. And what I have found was that a couple of filters. So one, if you really don't see ourselves implementing that particular idea in the next 12 months, I think we should take it off the backlog because it's not powerful enough to become a priority in reasonably become a priority in the foreseeable future. And it's just noise. 
The second, if I have something on my personal back, I have kind of a list every day that I'm looking at this app. And if I keep pushing something back for 30 to 60 days and it never emerges, then I just take it off. Maybe I put it on another list just for my mental right. peace so that I don't lose it, but I never again look at it. Because ideas come back anyway, so it's not a shortage of ideas. Yeah, that's interesting that I, you believe that ideas come back. We tend to keep our backlog perpetually rolling. And the concept is, are we doing something actively? And here again, it's an agile term. It's called grooming the backlog. Huh. And that literally means someone has the responsibility to go back through that backlog periodically, let's just say every month, and look at it and do the filtering that you just described. But we tend to prioritize the backlog. And if something stays at the top for a successive number of cycles, we're like, well, wait a minute, we all agree and we consistently surface this thing as a good idea that we're not getting to. Now let's look at what we're actively doing. Is there something that we're doing that's of potentially lower value that we can stop doing? Again, my experience in entrepreneurship is, and this is frustrating for perfectionists, which most entrepreneurs tend to be, is that you just never get anything finished. You have to learn when you've got the list. Hey, this is as far as I can take this process. I've just got to stop messing with it for right now. It's good enough. And I'm going to pick something else up off the backlog that has a sense of urgency that I need to get to. But you do that because you just can't have everything active all at once. If you have five or 10 or 20 people or 200, you still don't have enough people usually to get everything done. Yeah, I like this. Less is more. You create value by eliminating. I'm working on a new book and one of the chapters is about reinvention, how companies reinvented themselves. And it's interesting how many companies there are that have a product, they failed at it, and then they find one small piece which actually is useful and then they scale that. And I think Slack started a gaming product, I think it was, and That's right. it didn't go anywhere. And chat function was actually pretty good. And then they started growing that and that grew into this multi-billion dollar company. Or YouTube, I think it started as a dating service. And never didn't go anywhere, but the actual uploading of videos was a good idea, which was just a, a small part of it. And that became this type of business. Okay, I can add one to your list there, Steve. You could go research eBay. eBay started out as an effort to digitize classified advertising in, in newspapers. Uh-huh. That was the original vision of that. And every newspaper they took it to said... No, we don't want to do that. We're not, our classified ad section is very profitable. We're not going to digitize it. And so they finally shrugged and said, well, what if we just do it ourselves? And so all of the beanie babies in the world that get sold on eBay are a derivative of the idea starting out to be targeted at the newspaper industry. And we, yeah. we all know how that went. <laughs> that, yeah, it went to gangbusters. Yeah. So our time is running out. So I sure. want to really get to the question that kind of intrigues me. On your website, you talk about making digital products transformational. And I was wondering, what's the essence of that? What makes a product transformational? Is it possible to predict whether it's going to be an order, some criteria that makes it likely that or it gives them a chance to become transformation? What are these? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to answer your second question first. Is there a way to predict? 
Not that I know of. If I knew that, I'd be very wealthy, I suppose. But what we talk about when we think about transformational aspects of a product are, is this something that hasn't existed before in some form? Is there really some fundamental change that's going to occur because of this product? And we just talked about several of them, but eBay doesn't get enough talk time anymore. It's sort of old, grizzled tech company. But no one had ever thought about that before. The idea of me selling my used motorcycle and you buying it without any intermediary was pretty novel. Normally, I would just list it in the newspaper and you'd see it in the newspaper and you'd call me up and we'd do all this stuff. The kind of the classic model, and we use this a lot when we discuss it with entrepreneurs, is If you're old enough to remember when Uber first came, Uber was transformational because, one, the only option you had was to call a taxi. And it was a horrible experience. So you were willing to try just about anything, including getting into the car of some stranger that showed up that said they would take you to your place. The second thing that was transformational about Uber is there was only one button. I mean, it only did one thing. And so you set up your account, you put your credit card in there, and then you just push the button. And there was only one button. Now, when you look at the Uber app, you have the Uber app and Uber Eats, and you can get Uber deliveries. And it's almost like you need a user manual to use, which is weird because it's an app, right? But it has so many things that it does. And they try to do, there's Uber bikes and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But the novelty was, this is something I could never have imagined doing before. And I just had one button that delivered on the core promise, which was someone will show up in a clean car, take you to where you're going and you get out and you leave. You don't even have to pay. You don't have to talk to the person. You don't have to make change. You don't have to worry about it. It was unbelievable. I remember when I started using it in San Francisco, It was just unbelievable. And in fact, the funny thing is the behavior changed so much for users in cities like San Francisco that when you did get it, taxi drivers were complaining because people were getting out of their taxi without paying them. Because remember, with Uber, you don't actually pay them. And I was one of those people. And it wasn't because I was trying to shaft the uh, taxi driver. I was just like, hey, here's your stop. And you get out. And and the guy's like, hey. That's the essence of the kind of transformational thing that we try to dig around in those ideas and say, okay, what can we do that makes this a step function different than Mm -hmm. radically different? I hope that answers your question or at least starts to address I mean, the simpler the better, basically, the simpler the better and make it a clean, simple idea that people can wrap their minds around and which is is an important, a value-add thing. And we don't want complexity in our lives, right? You want everything to be intuitive. You don't want to read the user manuals. We just want to press a button and make it happen and go with our lives and do what we want to do and not worry about the services around us. I think just serve us. I think you're 100% right. And complexity, the complexity in the solution is the job of the engineering and product team to hide from the user. I'm not saying that Uber was a simple thing to implement. There was a lot going on behind that one button. We have a client right now that's getting ready to release a product that has a lot of complexity in the background with blockchain and a lot of other things, but it's all hidden. 
No one knows that it relies on distributed architectures and blockchain technology and all that other stuff because people don't care. They don't want it. They just want it to do what it does. And it does it very well. They don't want the burdens. They just want the benefits. That's right. Love it. Love it. So Code Exitos creates these transformational products. So if our listeners would like to find out more and maybe talk to you, where should they go? How can they connect? Yeah, well, let's appreciate you asking. I'm on LinkedIn under Charles Fry. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. If you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, just put a little note telling me that you heard me on the show and you want to connect because I get a lot of just random LinkedIn requests from people I don't know. My email address is carlos at codexitos.com and the website, I think you, you'll do a good job of publishing all that information. Just send me a note and myself or one of the team will talk to you. We love to talk to entrepreneurs and it, it's a lot of fun. We enjoy getting to know people that are on this journey. It's been fun talking to you, Carlos or Charles. You go by both the names. That's right. So Charles, Carlos Fry. Uh, founder and CEO of Code Exitos. So do check him out. And also stay tuned because every week I bring another exciting entrepreneur on the show. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Charles, for showing up. Thanks, Steve.